Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 53 of The Essential X Lapsed, where we are slightly shifting gears. Uh, we are leaving the main X-Men book to uh, take a look at an Avengers story, and it's, a, it's an important Avengers story for our purview because it features the return of, uh, well, perhaps the most iconic X-Men villain, especially of uh, the Silver Age. And I mean, it's Magneto. <laughs> it's Magneto, so uh, pretty big deal to the uh, to the X family here. So we're gonna hop right on in. This is Avengers number forty-seven. We're jumping back a few months in the uh, in the cover dates here. We're back in nineteen sixty-seven, December of nineteen sixty-seven, to be exact. The story is called Magneto Walks the Earth, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by John Buscema, inks George Tuska, letters L. P. Gregory. Colors, probably that Goldberg guy, maybe? I don't know. Edit, Stan Lee, cover price, 12 cents. Now, this issue has an almost blindingly yellow cover, and uh, if you were an X-Fan back in the Silver Age, there'd be no mistaking who's going to be showing up in this issue, because Magneto is prominently placed. So, we open the issue here on that banished planet where the stranger had deposited Magneto twice to this point. Now, if you recall, old Magnus was collected by the stranger way back in X-Men number 11. Then he would escape, try and take over the mansion, and be recollected by the stranger like the very same day in X-Men number 18. Now, both of those rollicking adventures are available in the archives, and by now have been both collected in our X-Lapsed Masterworks compilation series. So, if one of me is not enough, uh, you get six in those compilations. Uh, you're welcome, and I'm sorry. Anyway, we are here with Magneto and Toad. The former is pontificating and Magnetoing, basically. The latter is sniveling and sycophanting, as he is wont to do. Now, after a page of exposition to explain who Magneto is and why he's stuck on this barren planet, we learn that our big bed has been sensing magnetic rays coming their direction from another planet, another galaxy, hopefully the Earth. Now, Mags claims that he could use these rays in order to free himself. And maybe the Toad as well, if he, you know, promises to keep his mouth shut. Oh, and we also learn that Magneto and Toad kind of have, like, free reign of this planet. You know, they were brought there by the Stranger, but the Stranger's kind of bored with them, because recently he collected the Abomination. Now, that likely occurred in the Hulk story that appeared in Tales to Astonish number 91, May 1967 cover date. Anyway, from here, we shift over to the Earth to find out exactly who's been emitting these weird magnetic rays into deep space. Turns out it's Dr. Dane Whitman and his definitely not evil assistant, Norris. Whitman's been trying to establish contact with human intelligence in another solar system... for reasons, I guess. And, you know, I suppose scientific curiosity is sometimes reason enough, right? Now, he claims that the magnetic response he's receiving is one of peace. Worth noting, he is currently interfacing with one gnarly piece of Kirby tech. Norris warns that the messenger might be lying about its message of peace, and it's almost as though Norris read a comic book or two in his time. And this facilitates uh, Dane looking right at the reader. He's like looking right into our soul, and proceeding to uh, exposit for an entire page about who he is. You see, he's the nephew of Professor Nathan Garrett, a renowned biologist by day, and the supercriminal, the Black Knight... By by night. Now, Garrett would perish in a battle with Iron Man that occurred in Tales of Suspense number 73, where they would both plummet from a great, great height. Now, Iron Man would just barely survive, but Garrett wasn't quite so lucky. 
So what does this have to do with the price of tea in China, you might be asking? Well, Dane sees the magnetic hoodoo he's doing as a way to make up for his uncle's misdeeds. Which, I mean, doesn't make much sense to me and seems like a pretty lousy motivation, but hey, it facilitates the story we're about to get into, right? But first, we shift scenes over to the headquarters of the Mighty Avengers, where Captain America has called the crew to assemble one last time. You see, he's decided to leave the team forever. I'm not sure why he's leaving or where the story beat is headed. Uh, He claims that it's time for Captain America to die so that Steve Rogers can live. Okay, that's poetic, I guess. Um, Now, the Avengers, as you might imagine, are quite displeased by this turn of events, but old Steve is steadfast in his decision. He barks at the team that he's out of there, and he stomps away. From here, we get a bunch of vignettes about how the rest of the team are reacting to this news. First stop, Hawkeye's pad, where his lady love Natasha is trying to comfort him. But Clint just won't have it. He tells the woman to back off so he can think about Cap leaving some more. He ultimately storms out of the pad, leaving Natasha to wonder whether Clint loves her or just her Black Widow alias. Next, Hank and Janet are headed off on a Las Vegas vacation, hopefully one that won't be quite as graphic as when Jeff Johns was writing the book. Anyway, Hank's thoughts are, duh, stuck on Cap leaving. So much so that he doesn't even realize, he doesn't even seem phased when Janet tells him that she bought an entire friggin' airplane. Then, Hercules is headed to Mount Olympus to chat up his daddy Zeus about his exile on Earth. But of course, his mind is occupied by thoughts of Captain America. We do stick with Herc, however, until he reaches Olympus, only to discover that the place has been deserted. And boy, I hope our Magneto story ends before this one picks up, because I don't give a crap about Olympus. From here, we head back to Dane Whitman and his definitely not evil assistant, Norris. I... I suppose I could probably cut the pretense that Norris isn't a baddie because this is where he bashes Dane over the head with, I don't know, a metal coconut? Uh, Dane is KO'd. However, by now, his magnetic missives have been returned in person. Magneto and the Toad are here. Norris is both scared and proud as he sees this contact as a bit of success, but, you know, it wound up bringing back a very, very scary man indeed. Magneto commands Nori tell him how this magnetic device works, and so the creepy little bald man gets to tinkering. You see, he's not doing it for Magneto, he's actually planning on trying to dupe Magneto into going back into space. Now, as he does this, Toad warns Mags that he's beginning to feel a little strange. And so our big bad hurls a wrench, or maybe it's a screwdriver, we'll have to ask Jean Grey for a uh, clarification, at Norris, knocking him out. Toad then deduces that they're in a castle. And castles have dungeons. And so Magneto carries the KO'd Norris and Whitman down a flight of stairs to, you know, the very, very convenient dungeon. Once the goons are deposited, Magneto pauses to consider his next move. Now you see, what he really wants to do more than anything else is reunite the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Well, sort of. He does want to bring Pietro and Wanda back. He doesn't seem to care less about Mastermind. Or poor retconned Astra, I suppose. In a somewhat gross panel, uh, Magneto refers to Scarlet Witch's beauty, and hindsight makes that feel kind of icky. Anyway, from here, Magneto gives us the quick and dirty on how he came to meet the Maximoffs. And of course, this is a story we've heard before. Wanda was being hunted down as a witch in some rural European town, and Magneto swooped in for the save. And it's basically what we see here as well, 
only with a bit more Quicksilver this time. Uh, Pietro does get knocked out pretty early and is basically a non-factor. At the end of this uh, little flashback, Magneto tells Wanda that she owes him her life, yada, yada, yada. From here, Magneto uses, I don't know, maybe the magnetic machine, in order to send a coded message to the Maximoffs, who, I mean, they show up at the castle in like no time flat. Once inside, they're attacked by a robot. Where Magneto got a robot, I will never know. Wanda is able to hex the robot good, and it's at this point where Magneto reintroduces himself. You see, this fight with the robot was just a test to see if Wanda and Pietro's mutant powers were still at their height, and apparently they both passed with flying colors. Wanda and Pietro are, as you might imagine, not pleased to see their their former leader, and we get some very... Very corny dialogue here. Uh, Wanda says, We're no longer criminals, but members of the mighty Avengers. And Quicksilver says, I shall never betray my oath as an Avenger. Um, Yikes. Uh, As a matter of fact, the word Avengers pops up approximately skaty 800 times over the course of the last three pages of this issue. Magneto decides to punish his um, former teammates by sicking even more robots on them. And, uh, turns out the combined forces of the robots and Magneto are more than enough to subdue the Maximoffs. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, more mags and the Black Knight rides again. So, what did we think of Magneto's big return to Earth? Um, it was okay. <laughs> it was, uh, really nothing to rock anybody's socks or to set anybody's hair on fire, but it was, uh, it was okay. I think it was in last episode's letters page where somebody had written in who was uh, very uh, offended by the fact that uh, Marvel chose to bring Magneto back in Avengers instead of X-Men. And after reading this story, perhaps for the first time, I, I don't know if I've ever read this one before, you know, I, I guess I can kind of agree. If you were an X-Men faithful back in the uh, late 60s and you weren't buying Avengers... Uh, or maybe you couldn't afford the extra 12 cents to pick up a you know second issue that month. You might be a bit ticked off to see uh, you know the mug of uh, one of the most iconic ex-villains on the cover of an issue of Avengers, maybe a book you're not following. But of course, that neglects to take into account the uh, the maximoffiness of the Avengers book, right? I figure Magneto is just as associated with the Maximoffs as he is with the X-Men, so it's kind of a you know, a coin toss as to where you would bring Magneto back. And if they thought it would make for a better story having him back to face off against his uh, former teammates, then, hey, you know, it stands to reason, doesn't it? As for the method that uh, facilitated his return, I mean, it's the Silver Age, right? Uh, What can we really say? It's kind of an odd motivation to have this uh, Dane Whitman hooked up to a giant machine that emits magnetic rays into into the who knows where. And bringing back the who knows what, so uh, or the who knows who, I suppose. But I get the impression that this is the bit of the story we should reflect on, like least of all. Like we should just kind of let this happen, because it's telling a story here. And um, you know, I am certainly looking forward to seeing how this one plays out here. I have an idea of how it'll play out. I feel like any time, any time Magneto gets involved with Quicksilver or the Scarlet Witch. Uh, he either manages to get into their heads briefly, or they pretend like he got into their heads briefly in order to dupe him. So, I'm assuming it'll be one of those two. Well, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming it's going to be one of those two. But we'll see that play out over the course of the next couple of episodes. Um, 
And when we get back to covering the X-Men book, uh, I believe Magneto is going to be the featured villain there as well, and that's going to wind up crossing over with the Avengers again. So we're going to be in a Magneto cycle for a little while here. We're going to, like I said uh, last episode, we're going to party like it's 1963 and 1964 and 1965, I guess. But really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say. Uh, The Avengers bits here, we're fine, right? I'm not too familiar with what was going on in the book at this time. I'm sure sure I've read some of these issues before, but uh, I don't remember Captain America leaving. You know, I do remember him leaving. I just don't remember why he left. I don't know if there was any sort of reasoning behind that or if it was just a spur of the moment, we got to get Cap out of this book because his solo book is kicking off pretty soon. I'm really not too sure, but I do like how they use that kind of as a device to touch base with the other members of the team. Even if all they could do is think about Captain America leaving, it was still cool to kind of get into their heads and, uh, you know, at least give them a few pages throughout this issue that really doesn't feature them all that often. Just the opportunity to show their face and to, uh, you know, like I said, get into their heads a little bit. But I think that's where I'll leave it for the analysis portion of this episode here. We will talk more as we work our way through. Now, as this isn't an issue of X-Men, we don't have a letters page. I don't have the letters pages for the Avengers. Um, And since this is a December 1967 cover-dated book, we've already discussed the bullpen bulletins for this month. So rather than repeat ourselves there, I figured I would do something a little bit different for the back matter portion of the program. And I I mentioned this last episode... I dug up the comic creators on the X-Men book from Titan Books, written by uh, Tom DeFalco. It's a series of articles, or, I mean, interviews, with many of the seminal creators uh, involved with the X-Men books and Mark Miller. I I don't know why he was there, but uh, he was there. He did Ultimate X-Men, which really doesn't matter. But um, Tom DeFalco sat down with Roy Thomas, and I wanted to check this part of the interview out. I'm pretty sure I haven't read this interview since I got the book, which was probably in 2003, 2004. So it's been going on 20 years since I've read this. So I wanted to get into Roy Thomas's head here and find out what he can recall about his, uh, you know, his first go around with the X-Men, at least up to this point, up to the death, apparent death of Professor X. And I do have a bunch of uh, Roy Thomas interviews in magazine format in my library here, so we might dig some of those out uh, when we do non-X books here as a as a means of filling in some back matter. So let's do this one here. Tom DeFalco asks, Why did you use a team of human supervillains like Count Nefaria, Plant Man, the Scarecrow, Porcupine, and the Eel in X-Men number 22? Which is a question that we've asked, too, because... It seemed pretty dumb. Uh, Roy Thomas says, I think that was Stan's idea, and that's going to become kind of the go-to answer here, not to, you know, bury the lead. But anytime something comes up that may have been, uh, maybe not so much dicey, but boring, (laughs) it's always kind of Stan's idea. Uh, Roy says... I think it was Stan's idea, or at the very least, he was enthusiastic about it. I would have warmed to that immediately because I liked that sort of thing. It was a sort of Injustice Society grouping. Which, um, I don't remember the Injustice Society being quite that boring, but, um, what are you gonna do? Uh, DeFalco asks, were you trying to bring more of an Avengers flavor into the book at that time? To which Roy says, probably. I actually preferred doing stories with regular supervillains. I just wasn't that big into the whole mutant thing at the time which makes him the perfect fit for writing the X-Men, doesn't it? 
Uh, DeFalco says, uh, or asks, Before you started writing X-Men, you seemed it seemed like the team was always fighting Magneto or the Mutant of the Month. Were you trying to turn the series into a traditional superhero comic? Roy says, Probably so, but with hindsight, it may have been a mistake. I, it meant that the X-Men didn't have as much of their own distinctive flavor. I don't recall being told by Stan, though, to continue emphasizing the mutants. Since X-Men was one of Marvel's weakest sellers at the time, perhaps he felt it was time to try a different approach instead of, the mo- of, instead of mostly using mutant villains. And, you know, I think that's kind of an unfair criticism of the first couple of years, uh, or the Stan Lee time on uh, X-Men here. And, you know, in fairness to uh, Roy and Tom... Had I not been doing this program, I probably would have had the same thoughts. You know, it's like, ah, oh, it was always Magneto. It was always an evil mutant. But it actually wasn't. Uh, the first year, certainly, you know, or the first, I suppose, two years since it was bi-monthly at the time, up to issue 11, I'm pretty sure it was a mutant every single month. And it was usually the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. But from issue 12 to uh, Roy Thomas taking over... I want to say there was only one issue that featured a mutant, and it was the return of Magneto in issue 18, right? In 12 and 13, we had the Juggernaut. Then we had the three-part Sentinel story. Then we had the the little bit with Magneto. Then we had the Mimic. So really, Magneto was the only mutant story we had there, and I believe that was only for an issue or an issue and a half. I think he was revealed at the end of one issue, and then they had the actual story with him after that. But, uh... Yeah, kind of an unfair criticism of the second half of Stan Lee's tenure there. But uh, like I said, if I wasn't doing the show and uh, these stories weren't quite so fresh in my mind, I probably would make the same sort of statement there. DeFalco's next question is, why did you allow Professor Xavier to walk on artificial legs in X-Men number 23? Roy says, I have a feeling this might have been Stan's suggestion. It wasn't like he would necessarily insist on it, but if he made a suggestion, why would I argue with him? Those were his characters, not mine. Okay. Uh, DeFalco asks, was X-Men number 24, The Plague of the Locust, an attempt to do a 1950s-style horror movie? Roy responds, I think there is some of that in it. Of course, he was mainly a supervillain. There have been a lot of insect-based characters in comics, like Spider-Man and Ant-Man. It was a logical extension to have a character called The Locust. I, I took elements from old movies like Them and a movie called The Beginning of the End, which had giant ants. And then there was Deadly Mantis, which had a giant praying mantis perched on the Washington Monument at one point. DeFalco's next question, why did you use the Puppet Master in X-Men number 27? Thomas says, X-Men was one of our least popular titles. It was doing okay, but it was the last one to go on from bi-monthly to monthly. X-Men and Daredevil were both generally selling below the other titles, and I hoped I could increase sales by bringing in a Fantastic Four villain. I also became one of the first people to really write Spider-Man because I had him in a two- or three-panel scene in that issue. I had to get permission from Stan to use Spider-Man. He seemed to like what I wrote there. A few issues later, in X-Men number 35, Stan actually let me use Spider-Man as a full guest star. It became the first Spider-Man story that was written by someone other than Stan. I was happy he had enough faith in me to let me do that. And this is definitely one of the big talking points we get about the Silver Age X-Men. They were, you know, a very low-selling, relatively speaking, a low-selling title. And if they put Puppet Master in the issue with the for the express purpose of improving or attempting to improve those sales, wouldn't you figure it would stand to reason that you'd put the Puppet Master on the cover of the issue? You know, he wasn't on the cover of the issue. The Mimic was on the cover of that issue, and... Uh, If, you know, the Mimic was a failed experiment in the eyes of uh, the sales department, 
Maybe that was the wrong choice. Maybe you put the Fantastic Four villain on the cover. I don't know. Okay, I'm going to get need to get a running start for this next sentence here. I'm trying to say, DeFalco next asks. But I'm saying it quickly, so it's saying next asks, and it sounds like I'm, you know, I have a mouthful of marbles, even more so than usual. So, Tom DeFalco next asks, I think we got through it that time, you introduced Banshee in X-Men number 28, right? And Roy says, right. Later, of course, he became a peripheral member of the revised version of X-Men I suggested in 1974. For some reason, I kept having these ideas for mutants from other countries. The first was a Japanese or Japanese-American who'd gotten his powers because his mother was at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But Stan wouldn't let me add a sixth X-Man at that time, right after I'd started scripting the book. So I didn't push to introduce him, even as a villain then. Later, I used most of those ideas for Sunfire, though not as an X-Man right away. And of course, there was Banshee, who should have been a woman. But Stan felt it wouldn't look good for the X-Men to be fighting a supervillainess. And later, of course, Wolverine. And you may be asking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't Wolverine created by uh, Len Wein? Well, yes, in part, but uh, Roy Thomas was involved as well. When he proposed the character of Wolverine to Len Wein, uh, Thomas said that, one, he was Canadian and announced as such right away. Two, he was short because a Wolverine is a small animal. And three, he had a quick temper because Wolverines are known for being fierce and taking on beasts far bigger than they are. And as we know, Wolverine famously first fought the Hulk and the Wendigo when he uh, first appeared. DeFalco, next question is, why did you introduce Factor 3 in X-Men number 28? Thomas says, I wanted to do a James Bond kind of thing. Bond used to fight this secret organization called Spectre, and the man from Uncle Guys fought Thrush. They were evil organizations that played the two sides in the Cold War. I wanted an organization that would become a third factor. DeFalco asks, why did you have the X-Men fight the Super Adaptoid in X-Men number 29? Thomas says, I always liked that character. I loved the idea that he had all the powers of the Avengers, and I, re- I wanted to bring him in. I don't know if he was counted technically as a real mutant, but it amounted to the same thing. In the end, I decided to pit him against the Mimic. One guy had all the powers of the Avengers, and the other had all the powers of the X-Men. For a while, I was toying with the idea of making the Mimic a member of the X-Men. Well, not only did Roy toy with it, he did it. <laughs> not only was the Mimic a member, he was also the field leader. Now, the final question we're going to cover today is kind of the reason why I'm including this at all. Tom DeFalco asks, When Professor Xavier died in X-Men number 42, did you really think he would remain dead? And that's a question that uh, I posed last episode when the professor, you know, died. Roy Thomas says, Our original intention was that he would remain dead. I don't think we intended to bring him back. I have this feeling that killing Xavier was Stan's idea, because of course it was or at the very least something he was enthusiastic about. It certainly wasn't done without his knowledge. Neil Adams and I have a little disagreement about the return of Xavier. I've always felt that I had the idea about the changeling impersonating Professor X as being a way to bring back Xavier if we ever wanted to do that, and that I even mentioned it to Neil and a few other people. Neil feels that he came up with the idea. At this stage, it doesn't make any difference. I just know that we weren't definitely planning on bringing Xavier back when we killed him. We were just playing it by ear. And that's where we'll leave the, uh, the Roy Thomas interview for now. We will be coming back to it. And as I mentioned, I do have other interviews with Thomas about his time on the X-Men that we might be digging into as we work our way through these non-X-Men stories as a means of uh, gathering back matter. Uh, but with all that said, I want to hop into a quick DCBS update. Uh, as I mentioned 
Well, probably in the last two or three episodes of the shows on this channel, I, I did not get any of my current year X-Men books as part of my DCBS package this month, which is why we're going to be heavy on the essentials for uh, for a little while here. And uh, I did reach out to them to ask if I should be concerned or if I should start pounding the pavement and hitting the mean streets of uh, Phoenix to pick up all the books that I missed out on. And I got a very, very brief reply saying, yes, we've been having problems with Marvel and Penguin Random House, which doesn't help. That really doesn't help me much. So I had to write them back and ask, okay, so what does this mean? Does this mean that uh, my order is going to be canceled somewhere down the line? Do I need to start buying these books so I don't miss them? Because the most confusing part of this to me is that, you know, I've hit a lot of the local comic shops to, uh, you know, dive into the back issue bins over the past couple of weeks, and none of them seem to have missed a beat. You know, they have all the X books that I didn't get. So uh, I'm wondering why DCBS is, you know, the one that isn't getting the books. So I guess we'll find out. Uh, I, I just sent this email a couple of hours ago, so I, I don't expect to reply for, you know, at least a day or two. But by then, if they tell me that, uh, you know, I'm boned and that they'll just refund the money for my X-Books, I will have to run out and procure them at uh, cover price, I suppose. But uh, we will see how that goes uh, when, you know, we'll, we'll burn that bridge when we get to it, I suppose. But for now, let's head into our wrap-up here. I'd like to uh, do the shout-out section where I thank folks who interacted and engaged and shared uh, the social media posts about this program, helping to raise the profile of this little show. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Walt Neeland, Billy D, Wacky Bronze slash Silver Age comic book villains, the Between the Pages blog, Dave Schultz, Andrew in Belfast, Joe Crawford, Frederick Pahone, Mark Jagger, Matt at Cononymous, and Pat Sampson. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Walt Neeland, Andrew Franklin, Billy D, Pat Sampson, and Jeremiah. And finally on Instagram, I want to thank The Positive Fan, Hamza Khalid, Mark Jagger, The Mint Condition Podcast, Nicole Dina, and Waterman778. While we're thanking folks, let's head over to the patrons at patreon.com slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Neeland, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse D. Young, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast for being absolutely amazing and for their wonderful, wonderful support. But that's going to do it for me. Let's head into contact information. If anybody out there would like to reach me for any reason at all, please feel free to do so. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. For the complete audio archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com or just search up Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill on any podcasting application that uh, may exist and maybe some that don't as well. And finally, again, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed, where you'll find some exclusive content, some behind-the-scenes stuff, and a great group of folks to interact with. But I think that's where I'll put a pin in it for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!